Welcome to Slurt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Welcome to Slurt. <laughs> That's what that was coming out we of. We should have named the podcast that Slurt. <laughs> Slurt. <Okay. laughs> All right. Welcome to Salt Lime Storytime, the podcast where we tell you stories worth telling over drinks. I'm Jess Nani, joined today by my lacerated co-host, Allison Hillman. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds about right. That's pretty good. Allison, how are you and your open wound doing? <laughs> well, it's it's closed with 10 staples, actually. So my closed wound, we're doing just fine. Thank you. Um, Allison, I don't know. Shit, I've had an tell, interesting week. <laughs> I was going to say, give us the Spark Notes version of the last several days of your life. <laughs> so obviously I'm still getting over my little cold that I've had. I sound a lot better. I feel a lot better, but yeah. there's still some gunk in there. Yeah. So uh, here's what happened. I, and it's so funny because on this podcast, I have been like the last like few months, I have just been updating everybody on just like my like elderly issues of like back pain, hearing loss, ulcer, just cracking up about these medical problems that I've been having. Little did I know that the mother load was yet to come, (laughs) that I was about to be humbled even more than I already have been. Like, the humble bus came hard for me. It was Friday. I was getting ready for work. I was completely sober. I hadn't had anything to drink in days. I was wide awake, just getting ready for the, just getting ready for the day. Then the next thing I know, I am laying in my bed. My head is bleeding. And I had changed into my night clothes. And then, so I get out of bed. I barely remember any of this. Nobody else was home when this happened. And then there's just this pool of blood on the floor by my bed. And I just, like, wipe it up. I don't know what's going on or what I should be doing, but I wipe it up. And then I remember, like, I have a job and this is the restaurant I work at, and I think I need to be at work soon. And I don't know, I just, like, don't feel like I can work right now. <laughs> so I call the restaurant, and my manager answers. I'm like, oh, I feel so bad. I sounded so fucked up. I was like, hi. Um, and she's like, hi. I was like, I, I'm, I work there. And I, anyway, I sounded so messed up. And anyway, I had a seizure, I guess is like what I'm getting around to. And like a a full blown, nobody saw it happen. I don't know exactly what I looked like, but probably not good. I had fallen backwards and hit my head on my nightstand, we think, and cut two inches long down to my skull. And that was obviously where the blood was coming from. And I woke up super disoriented, not knowing what was happening. And so eventually my managers were so, were so concerned. They got a hold of my mom because she's my emergency contact. I just feel so bad that other people had to get involved in this. So they call her because she was out doing something. And they're like, listen, something happened. And so my mom comes back and I I I got I was on the phone with her at that point. I was like, yeah, I cut my head, and she came in and was expecting just like a little like, like oh you know a cut. I had like gored myself on my nightstand. Like it was down my back. It was like all matted in my hair. And anyway, and so we had to go to the Instacare, right? 
Mm-hmm. But then they were like, you had a seizure. We, you have to go to the emergency room. So we went to the ER instead. Anyway, so we spent the next few, next few hours there. They gave me some staples. And we're like, well, you just can't drive for a while. And go see a neurologist and go home. And so that's what I've been doing the last few days is trying to figure out if this is something that's going to become a permanent issue. Yeah. So that's what my week has been like. Um, it was actually really scary. Like I will make jokes about it, but it was truly, it did scare the shit out of me. Like I absolutely to go from completely fine to just so fucked up and not knowing what was going on or happening in just the blink of an eye was just the most bizarre and worrisome thing but anyway so yeah I have 10 staples in my skull and my muscles ache they are so sore I feel like oh my gosh the doctor said that you you like people who have seizures it's like you just ran a marathon and I was like well that's the closest I'm ever getting to running a marathon (laughs) ever but that's kind of how my body feels like my calves hurt so bad that I was walking like a duck because I couldn't even bend my feet so I must have looked fucking insane. Oh my god. I don't know what I did if I like if I was so rigid or so like I don't know what happened during the seizure that like maybe like pulled my calf muscles or like yeah. I flexed them so tight for a long amount of time and now they're they're still sore. Like it was yeah. anyway. It's really bizarre. And if any of our listeners have ever had a seizure, I would love to talk to you just to see what your experience is like with it and yeah. how you deal with it. So yeah, that's me. Um, yeah, man. I don't know what else to say. Crazy. Yeah, I, it's it's seizures and epilepsy and seizure related illnesses are, are are scary and it's crazy because sometimes there are people that like will have one seizure brought on by like a multitude of things. And they'll never have one again, mm-hmm. which is what I'm I'm hoping for your sake. Obviously, yeah. um, but that's what I'm hoping too. That's what we're a- hoping. It's a crazy thing, but I'm glad that you, I'm glad that your mom came home and that you're okay, as much as okay as you can be, and that mm-hmm. you get to be afraid of metal detectors for the next little bit. Yeah, I really wonder, like, what would happen with that if I had to go to the airport. Like, I wonder, like, what that would sound like or look like to them. They, anyway. I think that they'd have to, because people that have titanium in their bodies, like, like, knee replacements and stuff, they have to go through a different one. And get like gotcha. So they'd have well, to, you know, make maybe. sure you didn't have a gun in your skull. <laughs> Just my, like, you know, knowledge, which is a weapon enough. But yeah, so, but it's it's what's frustrating is I can't think of a single thing that would have triggered it. Like again, yeah. I was completely sober. I had been for days. I had not anything to drink. I haven't done any sort of substance. Yeah. Other than alcohol in months. and like just out of out of out of the blue so well Allison thanks for sharing your story keep us updated and we're all we're all fasting and praying for you does this still count as my bad birthday luck I mean it's in February so sure I'm telling you February's cursed it was still in your birthday week yes it was okay we'll count it so you know well, it gave me the weekend to research my story. So There you go. Amazing. Amazing. It also gave me some really frightening pictures to open on my phone with no context because I had been at the gym <laughs> while you were texting us about it. I parked my car and was like, oh, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Gee whiz. 
is. It's gory. You can like see the fat deposits in my school. Like yes. you can see down to it's really upsetting. Yeah. It's I just crazy. need to figure out what's I don't know what's wrong with me. I really don't. I I'm 26 years old, man. Like what? Okay. You need an energy cleansing. Maybe that that's what that was. <laughs> Maybe Your we'll body just was say like, all right, reset we're button. We're doing this. Reset button. Ready, set, go. I just like factory powered off is what it was. <laughs> well, my weekend has been not quite as eventful, but I feel like I'm in a little bit of an existential crisis thanks to some TikToks I was telling Allison about earlier. I won't go into gory detail, but TikTok decided that it was like, hey, you know how you don't do well with like body horror and like being out of control? We're going to present you with two scenarios that will make you want to throw up. And now I just feel like my body is just unsafe. (laughs) I am feeling unsafe in my body for no other reason than these two stupid 30 second TikToks. But based off of the movie, what? The the movie that I was telling you about earlier. Uh, okay, we'll tell the listeners. I was force fed a TikTok about the film Tusk. And if you care about your sanity and you don't already know what this film is, don't Google it. The basic premise is that a man is like kidnapped and forced into a bunch of body modifications to become essentially a walrus. But he still has a humanoid face. Anyway, the 30 second clip that TikTok put on my For You page quite literally made me stay up till almost 2am last night just like obsessing about it and the other one was a art exhibit thing about this woman who she spent six hours next to a table of objects that you could use on her like pens feathers things like that all the way up into a gun and she just stands there for six hours and lets people do whatever they want to her and it's truly like a devastating piece of performance heart and both of those things have really just well i mean it it dangles the worst part of humanity Mm -hmm. in your face Mm -hmm. like the most messed up corrupt demented part of humanity yeah which is something that most people will never have to see you know it it dangles that in your face and that is very upsetting so i don't fault you for being upset by that and i think it's that thing of like we're sort of desensitized to the news and and war horror and things like that and terrorism and all this all this good stuff but there's something about these like individual acts of even fictional just body horror that i just am really struggling with so anyway alistair are both in a really great mental place recording this it's gonna Mm -hmm. be so fun you guys we have decided to do a surprise episode where both of us said we did a whole month or two months worth of theme topics what better than to not have a topic at all and just say fuck it we ball so before we Mm -hmm. get started allison i already mentioned this but i'm drinking an aperol spritz made for me by my loving partner brendan what are you drinking tonight I am drinking a prickly pear cider, a hard cider. Love that. Yum. But I, I poured it into a glass with ice just to see what happens. Yeah. It's actually funny because next to my sources is a tab open called Can I Drink After Having a Seizure? <laughs> <laughs> I'll like, close that now. Oh, so this is staring me in the face. Oh I can. I'm fine. Anyway. Okay. Uh, it's been It's been long enough. Good to know. But yeah, anyway, I'm having a little prickly pear hard seltzer hard cider that's it's very good 
I think I'm going first this week. Are we ready? You are going first. I am so, I'm so fucking ready. Okay. No Jesus Christ this time, but I'm not going to lie. I thought about it. I thought about writing the entire story of Jesus. (laughs) Really? Just as a gift to you. I would have, I mean, I would have loved it, but I will also love whatever it is you should, did choose, so I did something okay. close, so Allison, settle in. Okay. <laughs> We're ready. <clears throat> the year 1960 was a good one for Gen X mothers and their millennial daughters. The faces that would shape two full generations of romantic comedy sexual awakenings were being ushered in by doctors fully gassing childbearing mothers and fathers smoking in hospital rooms. The likes of Stanley Tucci, Kenneth Branagh, Antonio Banderas, Sean Penn, Colin Firth, and Hugh Grant were all born, and now decades later, later, Brenda and I both have Stanley Tucci on our hall passes, and so do our mothers. On your hall passes? Like, your hall pass for, like, if you if, if you meet a celebrity, you're allowed to sleep with them? Got it. Yeah. Understand. Yeah. Okay. I Stanley got you. Tucci. Just, just a... Crossing generations. Mm-hmm. We, we love him. Another absolutely key figure also came on the scene amongst this crop of culture titans. Our star was born naked on November 17th, 1960 in San Diego, California. Incidentally, 24 years exactly after Danny DeVito was born. What? <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out what you're doing. <laughs> um, so our star was born naked to Ernstine and Irving Charles. He's described his life from the moment the doctor set him on his mother's chest and beyond using one simple word. Drag. RuPaul. My name is Jessica Nani, ladies and gentlemen, and today I'm here to talk about mother-tucking RuPaul Charles, the queen of drag. (laughs) You said Charles, and I was like, are you doing, like, James Charles' father? Round two, James Charles, let's go. Oh my god, okay. Uh he shares a birthday with Danny DeVito. I thought that was really funny for some reason. That is that is pretty <laughs> iconic. So, RuPaul, let's go. I'm going to preface this by saying RuPaul has had some not great sound bites regarding transgender people that he has since apologized for. He also invests in fracking companies. So just, we're just putting that right up top. RuPaul, not a perfect person. And I know that. <laughs> But All right. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna chat about him, okay? <laughs> fracking or no fracking, he is the queen of drag. <laughs> Mother tucking fracker. Love to see it. Um Rue's mother knew before he was even born that he was meant to be a star. After consulting with a psychic when she learned she was pregnant, Ernestine was told under no certain terms that her child would be famous. Despite raising him alone after a nasty divorce, Ernstine pushed the attitude of stardom into Rue's lap from the very beginning. In an interview with Entertainment Weekly, Rue was quoted saying, quote, I knew that I would be famous and I knew that I would be a star, but I knew I couldn't go directly to Los Angeles. I knew based on my reading Andy Warhol's interview magazine that I would have to go to New York, become a downtown superstar, and that would be the way I could transfer into mainstream stardom and get into Hollywood. I'm telling you, I knew this at 12 years old, end quote concrete jungle wet dream tomato look at him (laughs) heading straight to new york city and i will say rupaul charles is rupaul's 
real name. It is not a stage name. It is his really? mother named him. So they're Southern and his mother had a little bit of Creole in her. I don't remember exactly how much, but she wanted to name him after something in her, like from her Creole roots. So he is named after Rue as in the like cream flour base that you make when you make pasta sauces or soup sauces. Okay. Okay. Like, like a cooking I love that. Anyway, I just, I think it's so funny. It's very cute. Anyway, (laughs) Rue's childhood was less than idyllic. His father left them when he was only seven years old. He would sit with his siblings after the fact and they'd say to each other, quote, next car is going to be daddy. Next car is going to be daddy. Oh, shit. His father never came back. (sighs) He says, I have a lot of my personality packed into that one event in my life, and it's a constant source of hurt, but also of renewal and of really having the perspective now to see that it was, yes, it was his loss more than anything because he could not see the beauty that was there and the love that was there, end quote. Something I will say, there's, I put a lot of quotes into this because RuPaul is so eloquent, (laughs) like aggressively eloquent. So please, please enjoy as he tells you his own story. (laughs) Wow, that's so heartbreaking. I know. I know. The next one's daddy. So sad. By 15, Rue had been kicked out of high school and had moved out on his own to attend the Northside School of Performing Arts in Atlanta, Georgia. He dropped out shortly before graduating, like all good aspiring stars, to pursue a career in music and filmmaking. He spent six years as a car salesman while performing in his first band, Now Explosion. After six years, many short films, and a stint on a Georgia television show called The American Music Show, Rue decided it was time. In 1984, he made the leap he'd dreamed of since childhood and moved to New York City. After experimenting with gender-bending performances in Atlanta, he brought an edgier version with him to the drag scene in New York. Quote, I decided to start doing drag more as a way to get a rise out of the existing drag community and the preppy Reagan 80s anti-disco storyline. It was a way to capture some of that Warhol fun and make a statement. Smeared lipstick and combat boots and ratty wigs. It was a great golden era of drag. There was a tradition and a language attached to it, but we busted in and broke all of the rules. End quote. Fuck yeah. <laughs> he oh my god. Has the best quotes. Like, <laughs> after just six months in the Big Apple, RuPaul threw in the towel. It wasn't ready for him, and he wasn't ready for the scene. Rue said he realized, quote, the first half of my career was really just about getting my father's attention, end quote. So he returned to his roots in Atlanta and began reworking his drag persona. Star Booty was born. Wait, pause. First of all, great name. So he was in contact with his father then? No, he wasn't. I think it was the thing of he was trying to get famous enough that his father, who had left him, would notice him. Okay. And I will say... Beyond these kind of very high-level personal details, RuPaul is famously private. And so aside from what he was doing in the public eye, like, his partner is, they know, like, we know very little about his partner besides, like, how they met, that kind of thing. So there's kind of some of these details that you're going to be like, why aren't we covering that? I don't know them. They're not written. RuPaul doesn't talk about it. (laughs) In all of the articles I read about him, it was like, RuPaul is a incredibly private person for someone that's so public (laughs) got it yeah Yeah, anyway so after six months in new york like i said he wasn't having the fun and getting the stardom that he thought he would 
So he went home. Star Booty was born. She was a more glamorous version of Rue's drag persona, an undercover model and a beauty queen. Rue introduced Star Booty in the scene and said, quote, when I got into drag, straight men, straight women, everyone would go, bitch, damn. And I could feel it. <laughs> I had never felt it before. I knew I had power and I knew that it was important for me to get a lot of work done wherever I was. I wrote and produced and put together shows. I made about 16 star booties, these little trashy movies on VHS. Atlanta gave me the freedom to produce that kind of stuff. Those 10,000 hours that Malcolm Gladwell talks about needing to master anything. That was that period for me between 1982 and 1992, not making a dime, but putting in hard yards. I would write books. I would sell postcards at the club. I would do whatever it took to make up those credits for those 10,000 hours. End quote whoa wow it sounds exhausting listen chris jenner works hard rupaul <laughs> works just as fucking hard <laughs> <laughs> yeah i believe it I, I couldn't hang wow i know seriously two musicians and friends of this era fenton bailey and randy barbato said of this time in Ru's life quote when we met him he was wheat pasting posters of himself that said rupaul is everything I often oh. think of that moment because it was just so symbolic in many ways. It contained the fundamental message of Rue from the beginning, and it was instant recognition. You couldn't miss it. Like when you see a UFO, you knew what you were seeing. He was a motherfucking star, end quote. What? <laughs> I mean, he's confident. I'll give him that. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> in 1987, Rue finally returned to New York and became a go-go dancer. He carved a name out for himself in the club scene and was often hired to come to clubs to literally just be himself. He'd get hired under the guise of, like, just come as RuPaul and just, like, make it fun. The same year, he released his first film debut, RuPaul is Star Booty, which got a bit of traction. But once again, New York was not quite what Ru was expecting. He tried leaving again, this time returning to his sisters in California. But a close friend and club DJ, Larry T, staged an intervention with Ru, got him a plane ticket, and basically dragged, pun intended, intended dragged him back to New York. Good one. Rue said, quote, so I got a plane ticket and decided I was going to fucking shave these legs. I'm going to shave my chest. I'm going to put on some fucking titties and rolled up socks, not implants. And I'm going to go back to New York and give those bitches exactly what they want from me. And overnight, I became the star of downtown. In 1989, Rue got his now famous big break with the B-52s. He was featured in, a, in full drag in their iconic music video for Love Shack. Are you familiar with the song Love Shack, Allison? Yeah, yes, I am. Not the music video, but the song, of course. Music video is a good time. I will say RuPaul oh, is fantastic in it. And the fact that he's in full drag and it was like huge at the time. Like it was kind of crazy that he was even allowed to be yeah. in this music video in full drag. How sorry. How old is he at this point? At this point, this is 1989. He's 29. Okay, so I need to... I have a few years. Okay. Yeah, you're fine. <laughs> he doesn't really get famous until his 30s, so you've got plenty of time. Well, I don't want to get famous. No, never mind. I, you know, Well, success. but you know, like, he, he success, you know, on these things. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, the national stage that the Love Shack video got him was all the fire Rue needed to take on an international stage. His friends from Atlanta, Fenton and Randy, were taking off and willing to manage his career. They set him up with a two-season, woman-about-town-style talk show called Manhattan Cable that aired in the UK. And then, Rue's first hit single, Supermodel, You Better Work, 
came out. By 1993, the single and its accompanying album, Supermodel of the World, was one of the best-selling dance records of the year. Supermodel, or You Better Work, it has two titles. It's kind of annoying. If that didn't make sense, that's why. Oh, okay. Supermodel is on RuPaul's Drag Race every single episode. Okay. It's a classic. It's a classic. Anyway. Ru became a household name, and the pressure to bring drag to the masses in a digestible way fell on his body-glittered shoulders. When he performed at the LGBT march on Washington that same year, he became a spokesperson for the gay rights movement. He said, quote, I knew based on the questions I was asked that I had to represent, and I knew that my days of having fun and drag were over. In the club world, it was so much fun. We would terrorize the neighborhoods and have a great time doing lots of naughty, naughty things. But I knew that those days were over because it was clear I had to represent a faction of society that had gone unnoticed and did not have a voice. This is also, all of this is occurring in, like, the peak AIDS crisis. So RuPaul is literally, like... Him and Princess Die are up there. Like, I am the voice. I am oh the voice. Oh my god. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. And his first just kept coming. In 1994, he became the face of MAC Cosmetics with a modeling contract that brought intense scrutiny and criticism. Oh my Can god. you imagine, in the early 90s, turning on your TV or opening a magazine and seeing RuPaul in a makeup campaign and they like it was raunchy there is the m in one of the like magazine print covers the like v of the m is his legs in a v in full drag and then they've like made the m out of it so it's like oh my god pussy pussy out (laughs) wow uh i mean he's hot like i uh, he's a gorgeous gorgeous person i mean we heard we heard the we heard the quote he gave oh, yeah. me the, the, the damn bitch. <laughs> I think was yeah. what this said. Yeah. With so many external eyes and brands needing his voice, Rue decided it was time to put the club behind him, but not before he got a little booty, booty, booty first. <laughs> oh, sure. That's a, that's a quote from one of his other songs. <laughs> oh, got it. <laughs> he okay, met- sorry. <laughs> he met his now husband, George Labar, at a club in New York City. He was miraculously taller than Rue, who was a famously tall person, and they hit it off instantly. Labar is a rancher in Wyoming and keeps out of the limelight as much as possible. And that's all we really know about them, other than they have been together since 1994. Honestly, that's probably why they've been together for like 28 years is because they keep out of the limelight. Yep. Honestly, celebrity ruins people. Like, yeah, it really, I, wow. Good for him. I actually did not know that RuPaul was married. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's kind of like the Dolly Parton thing, where Dolly Parton's husband, like... Yeah, just I stays low. RuPaul's husband has come to a couple of, like, like there are pictures of him at a couple of premieres, but for the most part, he doesn't come out. RuPaul talks about him in talk shows every so often, but, like, not very. Gotcha. So, very private. Anyway. Good for them. The other love of his life, Michelle Visage, a fellow club kid from his go-go days, teamed up with him on a New York City radio show in 1996. She said, quote, and one week, RuPaul walks in, and he sees me and he goes, of course it's you. Who else would it be? That was 1996. I hadn't seen him since 92. It was like kismet, and that's where everything started. It was obvious that this was the team, end quote. 
Though they didn't know it at the time, this co-hosting radio gig was the foundation for what would later become them co-hosting Drag Race. The two took their radio act to television with the help of a television network, World of Wonder, and began the RuPaul show. It was the first openly gay talk show Ellen would follow shortly after, but it was the first. The show lasted 100 episodes and was abruptly canceled after the network couldn't secure ad spend. After this major blow, Rue took himself out of the limelight. He recalls the time saying, quote, I decided I needed to move out to LA to reclaim my own personal rhythm. I became sober. I knew I needed to step away. And when I look back at those years, they're so important. I got to be myself again and remember what that is. And Mm -hmm. something that I think is really interesting about RuPaul as a sober person is there's like a very big drinking culture in drag. And this is actually a really common story thread for a lot of drag queens is that they're in these sort of nightlife spaces all the time and like you're in a club people you perform and people are like oh let me buy you a drink oh let me buy you a drink oh let's do a line like let's do a bump let's do whatever like it's a pretty common thing for drag queens to let that aren't don't even notice they like become very substance dependent and RuPaul started smoking weed when he was 11 to cope with his father being gone and so you know in his 30s by the time he hit 30 and like getting out of the scene I think it's really admirable that he was like stepped away from that fame for a while to center himself and find his health and like all of these things particularly in an industry that is so focused on drinking and clubbing and doing because this is where they perform this is where they were allowed to perform Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. and so it's kind of the the thing that's both it's a double-edged sword of like this is the safe space for them but it's also you know shoving alcohol down your throats basically so i mean it's also alcohol is even part of the performance a lot of the time yeah like yeah taking shots on stage with or or you know like popping open a bottle of champagne in a way Yeah, that's really, that's really rough. That'd be really tiring. Absolutely. A couple of the drag queens that I follow pretty closely talk about it a lot of how, like, one of the drag queens I really like, Katya, who we've talked about a million and one times, she's sober from alcohol and a couple of other things. I think she smokes weed, but um, she talks about it on her first season of, of Drag Race, where it's like, it's so hard to be sober and in this industry and it was like a big part of her character arc of like there are sober drag queens and RuPaul and her have a whole conversation about him deciding to be sober because like one of the things that prompted it was that he got fired from a photo shoot because he was too drunk to do the photo shoot in this and like got fired from it and basically was like I have to clean up my act so wow anywho that's my dragon drinking soapbox but After eight years away, Rue was approached by the World of Wonder head of development, Tom Campbell, with the offer to produce another show. In an interview with EW, the two recalled the ideation process, saying, quote, When I came back to show business, I was doing it for different reasons. Color and music and love and laughter and beauty and dancing and creativity. All of those reasons why I get out of bed in the morning, Rue explained. I was very close to not coming back to saying I want to do something else, but when I finally did come back, I was inspired. Tom says, Rue had said, I'll do anything but competition elimination show. (laughs) So we spent three or four days coming up with a loosely scripted show like Strangers with Candy, Campbell explained. 
And Rue goes, this is great, but you know what? We should do a reality competition show. <laughs> Tom landed on the drag racing play on words and then eventually sold Rue on the concept, but had trouble getting any mainstream networks to bite, unquote. Luckily for them, a year prior, Logo, an LGBTQ plus focused network, had taken off. They decided to take a chance on this drag race concept, and by 2009, the show was filming Drag Race. Drag, even in the gay community, wasn't quite yet considered socially acceptable to most audiences, so it was an incredibly slow rise to fame, just like RuPaul. With wow. each season and a few network jumps and a way higher budget, the popularity of the fire started burning. As of this recording, he currently holds 12 Emmys for Outstanding Host in a Competition Program, beating only Jeff Probst of Survivor and the most awarded person of color in Emmy history. Logo's gamble has absolutely paid off. Drag Race itself has over 30 television awards and holds the honor and great responsibility of bringing drag to the main stage. 196 drag queens have appeared on the American series and 251 drag queens have appeared on the international versions. Drag Race is now a cultural like touchstone and has just absolutely, I mean, you think about like the fact that drag queens are like, there's so much talk about drag queens in Congress right now is because like, Obviously, it's because Republicans are absolutely idiots and they can't, like, do anything better with their time other than, like, find marginalized groups to fuck with. But, like, they are truly, particularly, like, drag queens of color in the same way that trans women of color are these representatives. Like, they are the voice of these marginalized communities and they are so powerful that Congress is scared of them. Which is why yeah. <laughs> they are well put. being so persecuted. And I think that's that's something else that's like, and this is kind of getting back into, um, you know, acknowledging some of RuPaul's less nice things he's had to say about, or like less knowledgeable things he's had to say about transgender people previously. I think the other thing is like drag can be, it's not always, but drag can be a gateway of expression for people who are trying to figure out if they are transgender and if this is a gender expression that is better for them. And despite some of his, his shortcomings previously, he's now like two, a year and a half, half ago, two years ago, they had the first trans woman win drag race and like is now a household name. And, and she was also the first um, drag queen on RuPaul's drag race to come out as transgender on the show in season two. Like, Oh my God. Yeah. And then she came back and won all stars. So like Kylie Sonique love. Uh, and so it's like this platform, you know, and again, I'll say RuPaul, not always the most eloquent when it comes to the subject, but like it's given a platform to these people. And then like, it's there's shows that would not have been possible without this. So like the HBO max series were here that follows Bob, the drag queen and Shangela and Eureka O'Hara, who they go to these small communities, St. George and, and Idaho falls are two of them where they go and do these makeover shows with these um, people that, that are feel like need, this sort of hype up or particularly queer youth that feel the one in St. George is this, this person that um, is completely ostracized from their family and they go in and they give them the resources that they need and the support that they need. And that wouldn't be possible without RuPaul. And like Shangela was just on dancing for the stars Mm -hmm. on a public network, American television show and was in the final. She was in the finale. 
and none of that would have been possible well, without RuPaul. So yeah, it's incredible. It's anyway. a huge stepping stone. It's like more than the Massive. stepping stone. It, it's 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 incredible. Anyway, and now I too can go to drag brunch in Salt Lake City, Utah. Thank you, RuPaul, and thank you to the local queens in Salt Lake who make that possible. But anyway. That's all. Cheers. <laughs> cheers to cheers to RuPaul. Like I I really should watch the drag race. If it's super odd of me. Like the only episode I've ever watched is the one that we watched together mm-hmm. on my birthday. Mm-hmm. Um that's crazy. I should really I should really watch it. It's a good it's so it's so iconic. It really is. It's I mean the memes that that and I hope vine that is so classic. Oh, yeah. That's mm-hmm. Ru- That's a RuPaul girl. It's a Ru girl, Jasmine. And wh- what's it called when they do that little squat kick thing? Uh oh, walking the duck. You better fucking walk that duck. I oh my god, I if I that's my I, it's my favorite. I love it when they do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's so great. Anyway, I, well done. That's I stuff. honestly did not know much about RuPaul at all. Yeah, um, it's fascinating. And isn't he? You were telling me that he's, like, pretty old now then. Wait, how old is he? I think he turns 60. He's younger than I thought he was. He turns, I think, 63 this year. Oh, okay, yeah. Sorry, he's not nearly as old as I thought he was. No. I thought he was older. I thought he was in his early 70s, but I was incorrect. Gotcha. But um, if you are interested, if you listeners at home are interested in learning more about drag as a whole, there are some really fantastic documentaries currently on Netflix. So um, the OG Paris is Burning is on Netflix right now. There is a documentary that came out in 2019 called Wig that I think is on Netflix, but I could be wrong about that. It might be on Amazon Prime. That is also fantastic. I got the majority of this from a couple of interviews that RuPaul has done with uh, Entertainment Weekly, as well as his profile on blackpass.org, Wikipedia for all of the awards and nominations, as always, and then Mamma Mia article called Who is RuPaul Charles, and a podcast, the Pop Culture Podcast. They did a two-part, se- se- or two-part episode on RuPaul. That was also very good. So go fight okay. win. Thanks, Allison. I know this was uh, very much no, I, a topic for me, but I, I appreciate you listening. It was very interesting. I mean, I, I've said it before. Like, I, I do enjoy it when you do pop culture stuff because I really don't know much about I don't. That's not really like the what I like pay attention to, and so mm-hmm. I always learn a lot. I always learn a lot whenever you do these kinds of episodes. So I do appreciate it. And I think, I mean, I would say almost everybody our age knows who RuPaul is. Yes. And so I think a lot of people learned something today. He's in so many. Did you know that he was in the Brady Bunch movie? What? No. What? Yes. He's in the Brady Bunch movie. He's been in a bunch of Netflix originals. He's been in like some really funny like Disney adjacent movies. Like he kind of does the Tyra Banks pop in pop out thing. It's it's very entertaining. Anyway, gotcha. so fun. Incredible. Allison, you told me that your episode or that your story is something that I am going to love, and I managed to save most of my cocktail for your episode or for your story, and I'm so excited. <laughs> It's it's something I think it's it's hard not to love. Okay. So I think like specifically I, I don't know. 
you let me know. It's just one of those things where I would be shocked if anybody was not interested in this. Thrilled. Okay. Okay. Today, Jess, my (laughs) surprise for you is on one of my all-time favorite topics, not plane crashes. Nothing like that. I'm talking something else. Can I guess? And that is, yes. Treasure? Yes. (laughs) But more than that, the Antwerp Diamond Heist, a.k.a. the heist of the century. Okay. 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 I don't know anything about this. I didn't either, and I'm fucking shocked because it's so iconic, and... I had a few sources. I watched a couple videos. I actually, there was one, the first video I watched, I never got to finish because I had a seizure and I just <laughs> never got around to finish. Oh. I was literally watching it when it happened and I just, oh. so I don't know how it ends, but it's fine. It's it's funny. It's funny. But I got m- almost all of my information from a Wired.com article written by Joshua Davis. And anyway, we'll go into that a little bit in a second, but. All right, so I'm going to tell you about the Antwerp Diamond Heist. Okay, Jess, so to start off. So a genius, a locksmith, a monster, and a nervous wreck walk into a bar. And by bar, I mean impenetrable diamond safe with (laughs) state-of-the-art security. (laughs) Thank you for that. All right. The team had spent the last year and a half planning this elaborate heist, and after successfully disabling 10 security systems and opening the three-ton steel door, they had done it. But it was a race against time. They only had until 6.30 a.m. before the quiet streets began to fill with people. They spent the next few hours busting open safe deposit box after safe deposit box, and in no time their duffel bags were heaping with rare diamonds, jewelry, gems, and cash from all over the world. The genius, the king of keys, the monster, and Speedy made their careful escape back up the dark stairs, down the ladder, through the garden, and into the waiting car being driven by the mastermind himself, Leonardo Notarbatolo. Notarbatolo. I don't speak Italian. Leonardo Notarbatolo. Leonardo no- I'm just talking too fast. Leonardo Notarbatolo. I'm going to call him Leonardo because of what just happened. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's not obvious. It wasn't until 36 hours later that the ransacked vault was discovered. But by then, oh it was gosh. too late. Mm-hmm. But by then, it was too late. And the $100 million worth of stolen jewels have still never been found. <gasps> Treasure! Treasure! It's my... Okay, and here's the thing. This was $100 million in 2003, so that's like half a billion dollars today. Just happened in 2003? Yeah, very, like, we were just going to kindergarten, and meanwhile, somebody was living my dream. Okay, so Leonardo Notarbatolo was born in Palermo, Sicily in 1952. He committed his first theft when he was just six years old, and it quickly became an obsession. Like, he, after his first theft, he was like, this is what I meant to do, so I guess 
at least he, you know, to each their own. After years of petty thefts and picking locks, he began tracking jewelry salesmen around Italy to study their behavior and dealings. In his 30s, Leonardo started assembling his own team of skilled thieves, including lockpickers, alarm aces, safecrackers, and tunnel experts. Since all these men, including him, lived in and around Turin, Italy, the group became known as the School of Turin. Leonardo and his team participated in multiple robberies over the next several years. His best asset was his charm, and he was liked by everybody that he met. He would pose as a jeweler and be invited into offices, vaults, and workshops for gem inspections. He would often purchase a few gemstones as tokens, only to come back in the dead of night, empty their stocks, and vanish. Oh my gosh. Like, I don't, like, I mean, I don't like him, but, like, he, what, I, it's, you know, like, oh my god, everybody how, wants- How fun for him. Like, how fun for him! Like, if- Like, I could just so not get away with something like that. It's, like, insane how bad of a liar I am. Anyway, so, I just... I mean, it's literally, like, one of those... Like, a movie like The Italian Job or something. Yeah. It's it's literally one of those, like, Mission Impossible-style movies. But it's real life. And they... Along with the cool nicknames and everything. Okay, so... Oh, God. (laughs) So... He would buy a few things and then go back and then, like, you know, steal all their shit. Leonardo would then travel to Antwerp, Belgium, twice every month to sell the stolen jewelry for cash. That's when he started to set his sights on Antwerp itself, the diamond capital of the world. Oh, boy. So, let me let me tell you a thing or two about the diamond capital of the world, okay? So... Antwerp's Diamond District is about a square mile of city dedicated to just diamond trading. 84% of the world's rough diamonds and 50% of cut diamonds pass through Antwerp, and the city also attracts international traders seeking the highest quality of diamonds. And, like, to this day, Antwerp diamonds are considered, like, some of the highest quality you could possibly get. Okay. The city itself is heavily patrolled with hundreds of security cameras and armed guards stationed throughout it. The guards also have control over these little, like, metal, they're not little, these (laughs) metal cylinders that raise in and out of the street to prevent cars from driving through. So there's a lot of security measures that, like, an entire section of a few blocks is Mm -hmm. basically Mm -hmm. dedicated Mm -hmm. to just this and they anyway i'm like gonna give myself another seizure i like i just need it to like calm the fuck down i need you to not do that right now at least you're on the couch this time oh tell me about it okay and in the south of the diamond district lays the antwerp diamond center the 14 story impenetrable fortress where these priceless gems were safely stored away you would think at this point people would know not to call something impenetrable or at Titanic unsinkable. You know what I mean? Okay, really quick. Please. Really quick. Have you watched Kunk on Earth on Netflix? Gunk? Kunk. No. <laughs> I need you after this to watch Kunk on Earth. It is a mockumentary about Earth and the history of Earth. And they do a whole bit on the Titanic 
that is truly the funniest thing I've seen in a long time. I digress, but please continue. Okay. Okay. But I mean, it's a trope that's been played on a million times. Mm -hmm. Don't call something Mm -hmm. unsinkable or unbreakable. Mankind, we find a way. I'll tell you what. And so we do. In 2001, Leonardo posed as a jewel trader and rented an office in the Diamond Center. He also rented his own safe deposit box, so he had access to the vault itself. So he'd been inside there. Around this time, Leonardo claims, and I am saying, I I emphasize that. He claims, and we'll see why in a minute. Leonardo claims that he was approached by one of his most trusted buyers, The man asked Leonardo to take a walk with him, and once they had made it out of the district, the man turned to Leonardo and said, I'd like to hire you for a robbery. A big robbery. Hot. I know, right? So, Leonardo said that breaking into the Diamond Center Vault was impossible, and he told him all the reasons why. However... This man said that he would pay Leonardo 100,000 euros to simply bring him footage from inside the supposedly impenetrable vault. Just to bring him some footage. And so he was like, (laughs) okay. So a few days later, Leonardo did what he had done thousands of times before. He entered the building, said hello to the front desk secretary, and used his key card to get into the main building. From there, he walked to the elevator that took him down to a small, claustrophobic room. There, he is greeted by security, as he always was, but they had seen him hundreds of times. So they let him through the room, into a hallway, and towards the massive three-ton steel door of the vault. Nothing unusual. What the guards didn't notice, however was the microscopic camera attached to the tip of the pen in his breast pocket. Oh my gosh. I know. Oh, oh how good gosh. is that? So, uh, spies in real life. I know, it's just the best. The vault alone had six layers of security. Different layers of security. Uh, there was a combination wheel with numbers from 0 to 99, To open, four numbers had to be dialed, and the digits could be seen only through a small lens on the top of the wheel. There were 100 million possible combinations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. why not just force it open with power tools? Jess, you fool! Power tools wouldn't work! The door was rated to withstand 12 hours of non-stop drilling, and Obviously, the first vibrations of a drill bit would set off the embedded seismic alarm anyway. So, you know, as one does. So the door was also monitored by a pair of adjacent metal plates, one on the door itself and one on the wall just to the right. So they look like this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, When armed, the plates formed a magnetic field. If the door were opened, the field would break, triggering an alarm. So, to disarm the field, a code had to be typed into a nearby keypad. Naturally. Of course. Finally, after all these things have been done successfully, the lock required an impossible-to-duplicate foot-long key. All right. <laughs> just, I'm, it's just thing after thing after all right. So, 
Fun key, let's go. Footlong key, yeah, uh-huh. Like, it's like the key to the fucking city. Like, is yeah. okay, anyway. Once the vault door was opened, there was still a door made out of steel bars that needed to be opened remotely from inside the security booth. Great. Period. There's a lot, right? So the pen's tiny camera took 100 high-quality photos from the moment the vault door was opened to when Leonardo left. He made sure to walk through the vault slowly and aim the little camera at every nook and cranny he could without drawing attention to himself. So he managed to photograph the motion, heat, and light detectors and internal security cameras inside the vault. So, I mean, there were six security things on the outside on the inside there were four more yeah which we'll get to so he managed to get footage of those the safe deposit boxes themselves were made of steel and copper and required a key and combination to open great each box (laughs) had 17,576 possible combinations shout out to whoever did this math i just i mean some board statistician out there was like, I wonder. So Excel. He went to his own box. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he went to his own box, opened and closed it, and left. In total, there were ten layers of security that would have to be bypassed inside and outside the vault to complete the heist. So I have a little photo for you that kind of shows the so you can visualize the vault and the security and all that good stuff. Please. It just seems like a lot, you know? Mm-hmm, just, mm-hmm. I don't know if I would see that and be like, oh my god, this is totally possible. You know what I'm saying? Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah, so you, wow. you get the idea. So he gives the dealer all of this footage. And Leonardo hadn't heard back from the dealer In a long time. So he figured the dealer had seen the footage and decided it was an impossible task. Yeah. But one day, five months later, his phone rang. It was the dealer who instructed Leonardo to meet him at an abandoned warehouse outside of town. There, Leonardo found the dealer had built a life-sized exact replica of the vault. Just based off the pictures the camera pen took. All right life-sized exact replica so anyway also waiting inside the vault were three men going by the aliases of the genius the monster and the king of keys each would have pivotal roles in the developing plan so as you might guess the genius specialized in alarm systems according to the dealer he could disable any kind of alarm The tall, muscular man was the monster. He was called that because he was monstrously good at everything he did. He was an expert lockpicker, electrician, mechanic, and driver, and had enormous physical strength. Also, everybody was, like, a little scared of him. So, you know, the monster. The monster. Makes sense. Similar to Miso. Oh, so good boy. Except I would much rather have Miso jump on me in the middle of the night than this guy. So, anyway... The King of Keys was a quiet locksmith noticeably older than the others, like Grandpa Age. Okay. The diamond dealer said he was among the best key forgers in the world. One of his contributions would be to duplicate the impossible-to-duplicate footlong vault (laughs) key. 
The King of Keys said that all he needed was a clear video of the key and he'd take care of the rest. <laughs> Grandpa was like, listen, I have had this hobby since I was eight years old. What no, more do you need from me? No, for real. This is all real life. This isn't like a made up story. It, it, like, these were their these were the names they went by. These were their jobs. Like it's like you're playing a video game and it's like a choose yeah. your character kind of thing. Like it's insane. This is just okay. Anyway, I just tag it yourself. Over. I'm the monster. Absolutely. I feel like the monster would be like a purple icon. I don't know why, but I feel yeah. like okay. Anyway, okay. But what about the other obstacles in their way? Good question, Jess. I'm so glad you asked. You're welcome. Um, in, in order to get the combination to the vault, they needed to hide a small camera above the vault's door. I have no idea how they pulled this off, but they did. I think the genius came in as like a electrician posing and fixed, some, but like installed a, I don't know. I, he didn't say. And we only know in all of this because he said. The police yeah. could not. Okay, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. All right, shut up. So the camera rested in the glare of a light bulb, making it difficult to see on the ground. A small antenna broadcasted the image into a nearby storage room beside the vault. There, you would find an ordinary-looking red fire extinguisher strapped to the wall. <laughs> the extinguisher, Jess, was fully functional, but a watertight compartment inside housed electronics that picked up and recorded the video signal. All right. Okay. All right. Uh, you know. The camera recorded the combination, and as the guard inserted the vault's key, the camera recorded a sharp image of the key before it disappeared inside the keyhole. So the camera did its job. They now had all the information they needed to complete their preparations. They were going to strike Saturday, February 15th, 2003. They chose this date for a few reasons. One, Two days prior, on February 13th, the world's largest diamond mining company, De Beers, sent in a massive shipment of uncut diamonds worth millions, right in time for Valentine's Day. And reason two, tennis legend Venus Williams was in town to play a <laughs> tournament that weekend, so people would be distracted watching the matches. I didn't put this in here. It was so long already. But she literally won, like, a diamond-encrusted golden racket or something. Anyway, I know. So she was killing it. Um, Also, if I were her, I would, like, low-key be honored that I kind of, like, I helped but didn't to, like, the heist of the century. Anyway. So people would be distracted. Also, with it being the weekend, they would be long gone by Monday when the mm-hmm. raid would be discovered. So mm-hmm. it really was perfect. But one last thing had to be done. Of course. Can you guess what it is? It's not that obvious. I don't know why I'm asking. It's kind of cruel. Um, they had to make sure they had a hearty breakfast. I hope that they did do that, but... um. But no, 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 sweet Jess. They had to get a getaway car. They had to disable a sensor inside the vault. Oh, my my bad. Sorry. Yeah, no, it was an unfair question. I don't know why I asked. 
so the day before the heist was planned, Leonardo did what he always does. He greeted the guards, showed his identification, and was allowed into the vault to access his safe deposit box. Except this time, our boy, so he, like, fakes a yawn and a stretch and reaches a can of women's hairspray towards the heat sensor above him, just gives it a good little spritz over. And he was counting on the guards being so used to his presence that they wouldn't be watching the security cameras. And he was right. Nobody saw him do that. That's insane. He turned and walked out. So it was a really simple but super effective hack. The oily film would temporarily insulate the sensor from fluctuations in the room's temperature. Yeah. And the alarm only went off if it sensed both heat and motion. So it wouldn't give them much time, but it would hopefully be long enough for the monster to put a bypass in the sensor's wires, disabling it for good. Yeah. Hairspray. Hairspray. I never... Okay, so... Everything was ready. It was ready. Perfect crime. Let's go. Right before the night of the heist, Leonardo introduced a new member of the team, a man called Speedy. Now, our boy Speedy was a decades-old friend of Leonardo's, and Leonardo insisted that he would be a good addition to the team. His job would be to relay updates back to Leonardo waiting in the getaway car, And since there was no cell reception in the vault itself. Mm -hmm, So he mm -hmm. would run back from the vault to the stairwell and like keep him updated. The monster, the genius, and the king of keys were hesitant, but Leonardo insisted and Speedy joined the team anyway. Hmm. Why do I feel like that Speedy is going to uh, be a problematic character in the next five minutes? I want to like be mad at Speedy, but like I would also be Speedy. I don't know. Okay, so... Like, I want to hate him, but he's, like, the most realistic character. He's just anxious. That's his problem. He's just anxious. So, anyway, on the night of Saturday, February 15th, the team made their way through the deserted Diamond District. Across town, Serena Williams was dominating the semifinals of the Diamond Games, and the whole town was watching. Leonardo parked his rental car on the curb a few blocks away and outstepped the genius, the monster, the king of keys, and Speedy, all carrying large duffel bags. The king of keys picked the lock on a nearby run-down office building, and they disappeared through the door. I mean, was was I right? Was this something that you're interested in? Yeah, absolutely. I'm fascinated by this. Where's the film? I'm right. I know. The film would be tacky. That's how, like, insanely perfect this is. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) There's not not enough going on in the actual heist. (sighs) No, I mean, it's so much. It's just, like, this can... It's so unrealistic, but it's real. Yeah. So, the genius led them out the rear of the building into a private garden that came up behind the Diamond Center. It was one of the few places in the district that wasn't constantly under video surveillance. So, he did his homework. Yeah. Obviously. Why fucking wouldn't he? So using a ladder he had previously hidden there, the genius climbed up to a small terrace on the second floor of the Diamond Center. And this is where they encounter their first big obstacle. Okay. But it wasn't a big obstacle for him because he just is a fucking genius. Yeah. All right. Whatever. Anyway, so it was a heat sensing infrared detector that monitored the terrace 
but he approached it slowly from behind a large homemade polyester shield. Okay. Okay. The shield successfully blocked his body heat as he slowly crept towards the sensor until he got close enough to place the shield in front of the sensor, just completely blocking it. So it wouldn't be able to sense anything else. Oh, like, okay. The genius then turned his focus to a window, disabled the alarm sensor there, easy peasy lemon squeezy, and they were in. They were in. The four men jump through the window and land in the dark stairwell. They make their way deeper and deeper into the building towards the vault, using black plastic bags to cover up security cameras as they went. Oh my gosh. Impenetrable. Yeah. Okay. When it was finally safe to flip on the lights, they did. And there it was. The three-ton steel diamond vault door. On the door... I already kind of described were two metal plates side by side, one on the door, one on the wall, if they were separated. Yeah. So that was the first thing that the genius needed to disable. And the way he fucking did this, like cops like had like a crush on him. They were like, <laughs> this is so incredible. So he pulls out a homemade custom aluminum slab and he sticks double-sided tape, really heavy-duty double-sided tape on one side. He sticks it to the two magnet plates and he unscrews the bolts. The magnet plates were now loose, but the sticky aluminum held them together and he just was able to pivot them out of the way and tape them to the wall. Oh my gosh. The plates were still side-by-side and active. The magnetic field never broke, but they were no longer monitoring the door. Like, he just moved them. Next, it was the King of Keys' turn. In Leonardo's videos, the King of Keys noticed that the guard usually visited a utility room just before opening the vault. What if that's where they kept the key? Hmm? Yeah. So they pried open the door and boom, there it was. It was just it was just right oh there my gosh. on the wall. So Grandpa Key was like, fuck you guys. But I mean, he had the duplicate. And he was like, well, there's no point in using the fake one if the real one's right here. We might as well not, like, let them know that their key can be duplicated. Let's just take the original and pretend like that was the plan the whole time. So they take the original. And so the genius spun the dial to the correct four digits. And what that did is that actually physically created the hole for the key. Like, once those got lined up perfectly. And so, once that was perfect, the King of Keys inserted the vault key, the monster turned off the lights, and in the darkness, the vault door silently opened. Oh? Speedy raced to the stairwell to phone Leonardo and tell him they were in. Back in his car, Leonardo was listening to a silent police scanner and sipping a cup of coffee. Incredible. Everything was going perfectly. I, like, know that they get out, and I'm like, ah! I know. It's, like, I think I even said in the Purge episode, if I could get away with, like, any crime, Uh, this would be the kind of crime that I would do. Like, where it's, like, perfectly calculated, and I steal, like, a billionaire's diamond. Okay, ba-ba-ba. I'm getting so excited. I like forgetting. Okay, so... The next thing in their way was the metal gate. The King of Keys swiftly picked the lock, 
and the gate opened. It wasn't it wasn't even a big fucking deal. Oh my gosh. Um, wasn't even like part of the things they were worried about. But now it was the monster's turn. He still had to bypass the heat and motion sensor before it sensed them. So, so far, the oily film of hairspray on the sensors was doing the trick, but he knew he didn't have long. The monster, this is where I would fail. The monster had to take some deep breaths to lower his heart rate to keep his body heat as low as possible. Oh my gosh. So, after his heart rate was low enough, he slowly crept into the vault. And he had practiced this 1,000 times in the warehouse replica. He walked forward exactly 11 steps, reached up, removed the ceiling tile, and started feeling the wires. Just by touch, he identified the correct wires, stripped them of their coating, and placed a pre-cut copper wire between the inbound and outbound cables. So this bridge rerouted the incoming electric pulses over to the outbound wire before the signal reached the sensors. So it no longer mattered what happened further down the line. The sensors wouldn't be able to trip an alarm. Yeah. And it Ugh. was now safe for the others to enter. Just like Ugh. that. Incredible. Just, oh my god. Incredible. Okay. But to be cautious, they taped a styrofoam box over the heat and motion sensor covered the light detector with tape and set to work in the dark. Wow. The King of Keys unloaded a homemade hand crank drill that would be able to open the safe deposit boxes. So basically, it would force a metal shaft into the lock and after cranking for three minutes, the lock would snap and the box would pop open. So it took about three minutes to open each one of these boxes, but he found a fucking way impenetrable okay so the guys took turns yanking out the contents and breaking open these boxes yeah as they'd have to oh of course since they had memorized the layout of the vault in the replica they only needed to turn on the flashlight for split seconds enough to position the drill over the next box oh my gosh but in those brief flashes of light they saw their loot and jess their duffel bags were overflowing literally overflowing with precious gems gold bars and millions of dollars in israeli swiss american european and british currencies this is so cool i know okay they grabbed the leather satchels that contained the jackpot rough and polished diamonds imported two days earlier from de beers they resisted the urge to look inside the satchels and just pack them up fast By 5.30 a.m., they had opened 123 of the 160 vaults, and they knew that they needed to be on their way out. Yeah. The city was going to wake up soon, and so Speedy told Leonardo that they were on their way. He was still sitting in the parked car, and the police scanner was still silent. Oh, my gosh. It took almost an hour for the team to haul these heavy bulging bags up the stairs through the window down the ladder through the garden and back into the decrepit office building one of them also made a quick stop into the security into the security office and grabbed the tapes for that night and the last few weeks so the police wouldn't be able to have anything to go off of incredible thank god for vhs yeah am i right or am i right okay yeah so Leonardo idled at the curb while on the phone with Speedy, 
a bus came and went, and when the street was empty, he hissed, Now! Just as the sun was peeking over the horizon, the four men raced out of the building. They jammed their bags in the car, slammed the doors, and headed off on foot towards Leonardo's apartment. Leonardo put the car in gear and slowly pulled away. And that was it. 30 minutes later, they were all huddled in his living room, like kids going through their candy after trick-or-treating, and were just like going through all of the shit that they got. And according to Leonardo, the monster grabbed one of the leather Debir diamond satchels and unzipped it, only to find it was empty. (gasps) Bewildered, he grabbed another and another. Almost all of them were empty. And then it hit him. They had been set up by the dealer. According to Leonardo, again, emphasis... They expected to take over $100 million worth of loot, but because of the empty satchels, their haul was closer to $20 million, which, I mean, is still like, oh my god, but it wasn't what they expected. So they made some salami sandwiches, as one would, and sat around the table discussing what to do next. They worried that they were all just pawns in a large insurance scam. Yeah. Coordinated by the dealer that sponsored the heist. So they thought that him and some other merchants likely pulled their diamonds out of the vault and hid them somewhere else, like in their office or their homes, right before the heist. This way they could claim that their precious gems were stolen and make off with the hefty insurance payout. Oh my gosh. Fast forward to the next day. Sunday, the Sabbath. The break-in still hasn't been discovered. It was evening, and Leonardo and Speedy were on the road headed towards Turin, Italy, 10 hours away. Yeah. In the back seat is a garbage bag full of their most incriminating evidence, including the security camera tapes. The plan was to burn the pile somewhere along the way in France, but our boy Speedy started to have a big old menti bee. Full-blown mental breakdown, sweating, hyperventilating, telling Leonardo over and over, like, oh my god, we're being followed, we're going to get caught. They had only been driving for 20 minutes, mind you. And so Leonardo was like, 10 hours of this, as if. And so he was like, fine, we can just burn the evidence right here. So they pull off onto a remote dirt road and drove until they found an old abandoned shack. Leonardo told Speedy to wait there as he scoped out the area. After finding the perfect spot to burn the evidence, he goes back to the car, and poor Speedy has completely lost it. He is throwing the garbage everywhere, muttering to himself in a panic. And because it would take so long to clean it up, Leonardo just helps him spread the evidence over a larger area, and they just called it good. Oh my gosh. And they drove away. Speedy! Like, I want to be mad at Speedy, but I would so be Speedy in this situation. Like, I want to be one of the cool, calm, collected, like, you know, like, it's my, this is my fucking dream. This is my fantasy. Yeah. But I know myself well enough to know that I am the Speedy in this situation. (laughs) All right, remind me to never steal anything with you. No, I was just going to say, Jess, if you ever are planning a heist or something, like I will not blame you if you don't include me. Okay. I'm such good. a bad liar. I get so okay. anxious. Anyway. <laughs> so 
Finally, the moment we have all been waiting for. Monday morning. Never been so excited for a Monday in my life. 36 hours after the job was complete. A security guard is headed to work at the Diamond Center only to find this. (laughs) Can you imagine? Only to find the safe opened and shit everywhere. They said it looked like a bomb went off inside and I have a image for you yes please (laughs) the police are (laughs) the police are there in minutes starting their investigation and are ultimately stumped as to how the thieves got into the building like even got into the building let alone pulled this off they couldn't even figure out how they got inside they estimated that 100 million dollars worth of loot was stolen Police couldn't help but marvel at the genius used to disable the magnet plates and the sensor inside the vault. They had no leads. Like, I can only imagine, like, as a detective, how much respect, like, I I can, like, already see it. How much I would admire these people for doing something this brilliantly. Like, it's like you've seen it a million times in shows, like, just stumping detectives left, right, no leads. No fingerprints were left behind, and security footage for the last few weeks had all been stolen. Meanwhile, the team of thieves was in Adro, Italy, divvying up the spoils. According to Leonardo, it was about $3 million per man, or $3 million worth of loot per man. Yeah. Which is still a lot, but they originally expected tens of millions each. Yeah. The dealer was supposed to get a third for financing the operation but apparently he never showed. Of course not. Okay, so let's regroup. The police have no leads, the trail is cold, and the thieves are countries away. They seem to have pulled off the perfect heist. Yes. Enter August Van Camp. Alright. A 59-year-old retiree. It was Monday, February 17th. He was taking a morning stroll through his beloved forest, admiring the trees, the little bunnies, the birds. But then he sees it. The worst possible thing he could see on his land. Litter. Those darn kids were at it again, littering on his land, up to no good. Just like every other time before, he phoned the police immediately and demanded someone come to investigate right now. Oh my gosh. The police promised to, you know, okay, we'll pass along your request, but they were a little busy at the moment with something else, you know? And then he said something that caught their attention. He mentioned that some Antwerp Diamond Center envelopes were among the garbage. Oh my gosh. Needless to say, detectives were swarming the woods within the hour fucking speedy so they picked through the pile of garbage in it (laughs) in it they found a receipt for a low-light surveillance camera with leonardo Patolo's name on it great then they found a business card for an electronics expert named elio dionario you may know him as the genius Then they found a half-eaten salami sandwich, one of the most incriminating pieces of evidence, actually. We'll get there. They found a half-eaten salami sandwich, along with the salami's original packaging. A detective got in his little car, drove to the grocery store, and asked the store manager for video footage from Thursday, February 13th. 
In it, a tall, muscular man named Ferdinando Finotto is seen purchasing the salami and leaving. You may know him as the monster. Oh my god. And finally, a discarded cell phone SIM card was traced back to a nervous man named Pietro Tabano, a.k.a. Speedy. Pietro, you fucking idiot. <laughs> you couldn't just wait to burn it. To br- that's all. Okay. Because of some poorly discarded evidence, the police now had four names. I know. Aren't you so disappointed? But, but hear me out. So it wasn't long before they had search warrants for Leonardo's Antwerp apartment. And mind you, Leonardo and his crew, they had they, they were completely unaware that the police had a lead. And so yeah. Leonardo got in his little car, drove back to Belgium that Thursday. He planned, and this is, I think, probably the stupidest thing he actually did. He planned to pop by the Diamond Center to show his face, hopefully alleviating any suspicion directed his way. Great. They always have to return to the scene of the crime. Just Indeed. just let if any future bank robbers are listening, just let it be. Let it be, okay? So the police were like on him so fast and a friend of Leonardo's witnessed this and took off to his apartment to warn Leonardo's wife and kids. They they had his back, so they packed up all the evidence they could, carrying bags and rolled up carpets into their cars. Unfortunately, this is when the police showed up with Leonardo in their custody. Oh my god. I know. Had his family been just 30 seconds faster, they would have gotten away with the evidence. Oh my god. So Speedy. now... <laughs> oh, I know. Aren't you so mad? So now they were all arrested, and those bags and rolled up carpets contained loose diamonds and gems, enough to incriminate them. Leonardo was sentenced to 10 years in prison for his role in orchestrating the heist. It was during this sentence that he was interviewed by Wired magazine, and he spilled all of this tea. So everything we know is this is all from an interview that he gave in like 2007 or something. Yeah. So it took a while, but Belgian detectives finally convinced French police to raid the home of the monster's girlfriend, where they found marked $100 bills belonging to one of the Diamond Center victims. So in 2007, the monster was sentenced to five years in jail, five years in jail, which is the maximum sentence for nonviolent robbery. Yeah. Regardless of the fact that they stole $100 million worth of loot, five, five years in jail, so the genius and Speedy were also caught and both served five years. The fifth thief, the King of Keys, has to this day never been identified. Dude, Grandpa, that's that's what he deserved. Oh yeah, he just needed some retirement money. He just needed some retirement money. I also love that nobody squealed. Oh yeah, that's the thing is that. There are multiple times in this where, like, in this interview, Leonardo actually refused to give the names of his accomplices, even though they were already found out. He refused to say them. And, oh, I have a photo of all of them, by the way. Yes. Give it to me. Yeah, so he refused to give their names. None of them are narcs. Even Speedy's not a narc. He's just fucking anxious and stupid and just didn't burn the evidence. Had they burned this evidence... They would have never been caught. But also, I would not have this story for you today, so. Yeah. 
Police wow. estimate that $100 million was stolen from the vault. Again, today, about a half billion was stolen from the vault. And almost none of it has been recovered. Oh my there gosh. is a theory. A theory that I personally believe that Leonardo made up the insurance scam to cover them in case they got caught. There was no merchant dealer who hired them for the job. It was his idea all along. Fascinating. I know, I know, right? So now they could claim to have only stolen $20 million to ensure that police or anybody else would not look for the other $80 million. This guy! I know. But nobody knows for sure. Today, in 2023, all five thieves are free, living their own lives. You can find Leonardo on fucking Facebook. I'm not kidding. <laughs> like, Incredible. Okay. I know. They're all f- living free, likely as millionaires. Leonardo is now in his 70s, lives in Turin, Italy, and runs a small jewelry factory. Of course he does. To this day... He and his accomplices refused to identify the King of Keys and have never revealed what actually happened to the $100 million worth of missing treasure. Good for them. And that's the incredible story of the heist of the century. Thank you so much for that. I appreciate that so much. Like, even though they were caught, they, like, they, they never got the shit back. No, they probably still have all the money or, you know, have fenced it, invested it, all the stuff, but crazy. What a story. Like, this also, guy's a professional thief. Why would he just tell somebody from Wired Magazine exactly? Yeah. Exactly also, what he did. Also, also, truly, victimless crime. Because this type yes. of, like, this type of thing, like, all of the people that got stolen from, the, and I say people loosely, it's probably more likely that they're like corporations or you know these people that are dealing in like shady diamonds already and they got all their insurance payout yep the bank got a free security audit and failed and now they have to do it again like you know mm-hmm. and victimless crime so however there were there were a few things that i read like one woman all of her entire life's savings, like her late husband's. Oh, good. Um, Never mind. I take it all back. So, I, I mean, but like most of it, Jess, most of it, you're right. But like this one woman did claim that like everything she had, she put into the faith of this vault. And so all of like her like family heirlooms were stolen and now she lost everything. But I mean, I could not find anywhere if the insurance companies actually paid out. But I'm sure that she got something for it. Like, I mean, she had yeah. to. And so while she did get fucked over in that way, and I'm sure some other people did, they lost things like, yeah, you know, their grandmother's diamond. I'd be really surprised if they weren't compensated in some way. Yeah, I mean, you should insure your diamonds. So, you know. But for the most part, victimless crime. So Incredible. Thank you so much. Happy to do it. Like, when no one gets hurt, it's just... It's fun. Yeah. And they're still out there. You can meet this guy on a cruise. You can find him <laughs> on Facebook, for God's sake. I'll go on a Mediterranean cruise, and if I see him, I'll tell you. Oh, my God. I just want to go up to him so bad and be like, just tell me. I won't tell anybody else. But just tell me. Did you just bury it in the Alps somewhere? Like, anyway. 
iconic. Well, and what's crazy is he probably had to fence it over a very extended period of time. Oh, yeah. Like, like his, fa- his wife and, like, whoever, business associate, it probably took him so fucking long. Especially if he told the other people that they only came out with $20 million. And although I guess if the thing then if he because he's the one that said that the bags were empty. So, yeah, I mean, if they all got their split of five, they all got 20 mil in like various assets. Yeah, if they were all in on like the possibility that like the fake insurance thing, I, I really do think that that's fake. But anyway, so fun, incredible, iconic. And I... It makes me want to go be naughty and commit a crime, but I can never get away with it, so. That's why you write stories like this. Be gay, do crime. That's what my be bumper sticker says. Be gay, do crime. Mm, mm, mm. Anyway. RuPaul felt the same way. Oh, absolutely. I mean, snatching those wigs, you know how it'd be. Snatch. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> I just almost pulled my headphones off. It's <laughs> really snatching. Hair. Oh, yes. Well, so this is not a delight. As always, a good surprise episode. Thank you. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you for giving me something to do this week. Always. Sorry that it had to be at the expense of your head. You know, it is what it is. And I'm just hoping that this is where it ends as far as my body rebelling against me. Yeah. This is is the end for sure. Yeah. Anyway. Well, we'll be back next week with a 3-2-1 shots. And uh, thanks all for listening. Happy March. We're almost to spring, you guys. We're almost oh, there. Can't wait. All, all right. right. Well, see you all later. Bye. Bye.